HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is presented by Forever Cheese. Learn more at forevercheese.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and I am so excited about this particular show because guess what we're talking about today? Oh, yes, we're talking about forever chemicals. Now, like you, I have been inundated with news stories about PFAS, PFAS, um, and our guest today is going to explain to us exactly what those are. Um, his name is David Swartney, and he is the William D. Ashton Professor in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering, as well as a professor of chemistry at the University of Iowa. And at University of Iowa, he directs the state-funded Center of Health for Health Effects of Environmental Contamination, which conducts research to identify, measure, and prevent adverse health outcomes from exposure to environmental toxins. See why he's so perfect, people? He also <laughs> serves as the director of the Environmental Policy Research Program through the University of Iowa Public Policy Center. In 2016, he served as a congressional fellow for the American Association for the Advancement of Science, working in the U.S. House of Representatives on the Committee for Energy and Commerce. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you so much for doing this, Professor David Swartney, I should say. Oh, well, uh, my pleasure. Or doctor. And thank, doctor. Thanks for such a, <laughs> doctor, yes. Uh, not the type of doctor that can save you, unfortunately. Um, no, but the type of doctor so that's going to explain to us exactly why we should all be, you know, really mindful of what is going on with the emerging research into this class of chemicals that are so ubiquitous. So um, let me start by asking you, first of all, about your work and how it relates to PFAS contamination. Yeah. Like, how sure. did you and, get and, into this? And, and thanks again so much for having me, Katie. It's great to be here. Um, Thank so you. So as you mentioned, I'm an environmental engineering chemist and sort of at a, the broadest level, my interests have always been water quality and chemical pollutants and sort of the impacts that those chemical pollutants can have on on our ecosystem, uh, public health, because we get it, we, we swim in those waters, we drink those waters. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, PFAS, as you mentioned, it's just sort of dominating the space right now. Um, we can talk more about why that is. So, uh, you know, it wasn't a field or an area that I was particularly, you know, 
one of the early adopters, I guess, in terms of researching it. But we've we've entered into it largely from the perspective of trying to better understand PFAS in Iowa, which is where I'm based. Right. Um, Iowa is a little bit um, different. It's not known to have major industrial centers for the production of these chemicals. And so it's easy to think that, you know, maybe we're not going to be all that affected by them. But I just, you know, that I knew that wasn't the case. We know where these things are used. So we've really been trying to understand sort of where, how PFAS show up in places in rural parts of Iowa, rural streams where you might Ooh. not expect to see them. Uh, so we did a study with the USGS a few years back and looked at 60 streams that were sort of off the beaten path in Iowa. And a third of those had evidence of PFAS chemicals in them, just to give you a sense that even when you don't expect to find them, there's usually a signature of them there. Right. They were all low levels. But again, you know, when you're up in Northwest Iowa, far removed from from industrial centers, it's 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 somewhat surprising. I would say um, so. We're now sort of extending that work and trying to really better understand sources, trying to look at things upstream and downstreams of some of the places that we know might be emitting these to understand those impacts. Um, and then, you know, my center, you mentioned we do a lot of work on private wells. So if um, you're served by a municipal supply, you're lucky because every morning you have somebody who's responsible for making sure your water is clean and safe to drink. If you are uh, using a private well, that person who's responsible is you, right? Mm. Private well owners fall outside of the Safe Drinking Water Act. And so there's no regulations for testing. There's no regulations for quality. And we have a lot of private well users in Iowa. And I tend to think that just given the nature of how these chemicals enter the environment, they're going to be a private well problem. Um, and so I have looking... a private well. You're making me really nervous now. <laughs> <laughs> well, so and he, here's the challenge with it. It won't be every private well, right? But we know where these chemicals are used. And there can be, you know, take airports. We'll talk about why it's used at airports. But Many of our airports in Iowa are sort of out away from the cities, usually outside of city limits where you aren't on city supply. And so we should be prioritizing where we test private wells around where we expect to see these chemicals. And when we've done that in Iowa, we've found these chemicals in those wells. Um, and so then we've done our best to try to better understand those occurrences, um, help those homeowners, give them information. Um, in some instances, we've even assisted them on finding access to testing for PFAS levels in their blood so they can understand sort of what uh, the exposure through their drinking water might have done, you know, how that might have impacted them. So that, right. that's what we do. We're really um, just trying to better understand what's out there and what the implications are with a real strong Iowa focus. But I think anything we learn in Iowa is just going to be relevant for more Midwestern rural America. Well, I think it sounds relevant to pretty much the entirety of the United States, with some areas being more intensely polluted than others. But before we go any further, can you, you know, for people who perhaps have not uh, taken a course in chemistry or haven't really read the, you know, the fine print, what are PFAS? Where do they come from? And how do they get into our bodies and our environment? Is it just a water? Are they, is it water sourcing or is it more widespread? I mean, is it like, you know, in the soil? Is it in the air? Yeah, that's, those are all great questions. I'll do my best. And I'm, I'm, I understand that most Americans don't want to get a chemistry lesson, uh, particularly <laughs> from podcasts. So I'm going to do my best to keep it light. But uh, PFAS stands for, if you, it's an acronym for per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. And so that's a mouthful. That's why we like to abbreviate it down to PFAS. Mm -hmm. Um, these are a family of chemicals that have been around since, in, in, you know, used in industry and commerce since the 1940s. Um, mm. 
you know, it's a family. I want to be very clear. When you hear about PFAS, that's a, a, a broad descriptor for a family of chemicals that some say ranges in three to four thousands in terms of number. Wow. Uh, what what links them together is is their chemistry. So the one thing that's a defining characteristic is they're they're largely composed of just two elements, carbon and fluorine. And I won't talk too much more about that other than to impress upon folks listening that we know <laughs> that when you put carbon and fluorine together in a, in a chemical uh, structure, it's incredibly stable. And so that's where this forever chemical moniker comes from. It's very hard to break a carbon fluorine bond. And so these things tend to be very difficult to, to degrade. They're very persistent. And so that's why we, we call them forever chemicals. Um, the other big difference about them, just to sort of kind of give folks the primer, is how big they are. So you'll hear people talk about longer chain or, or larger PFAS species as compared to shorter chain. It just relates to how many carbons are in the chemical. So understand some are bigger than others. And we the bigger ones have been around longer, and we tend to know more about the problems they cause and how they stick around the environment. And the two big ones there are abbreviated as PFOS and PFOA. So right. those are specific PFAS chemicals that each, um, you know, have been around since again, like the 40s and 50s. You know, how do we get exposed to them? Um, they're, the, the thing that makes PFAS chemicals um, valuable is they have a lot of, of characteristics we like as a society. They can mm -hmm. impart water repellents. They can make things non-stick. They can make things uh, as a lubricant. They're also really good at um, when you mix them into uh, a foam and suppressing fire, they can essentially structure themselves in a way that suffocates oxygen, keeps oxygen out of the fire and suffocated. Mm -hmm. That's why we use it in firefighting foams. So those favorable attributes brought a lot of profit to the chemical manufacturers and they built them into everything. So, um, so you know, they are fairly ubiquitous because in modern society, we've just come reliant on what they are and what they can do. Mm -hmm. um, so how do they get in the environment? Um, if you're, you know, if you're producing these chemicals or if you're manufacturing them into your products, your discharges into the environment um, would be potentially releasing PFAS chemicals. We have not regulated PFAS and discharges from industrial sources. So that's one way into waterways. Um, release during use. Um, I've mentioned the firefighting foam. We know that airports and military bases due to leaks during storage or just uh, the, the actual testing of those firefighting foams during training, that's an immediate input of these things in the environment. And then if we're using consumer products around the home, um, say our, our Teflon pots and pans, that are because Teflon is essentially made of, of these PFAS chemicals, and we dispose those in landfills, you know, there's the breakdown. And so, you know, just the, the life cycle of how we use consumer products with these chemicals. Mm. Um, last, and then I'll give you a chance to ask follow-ups. I mean, because <laughs> I know you, you had a lot wrapped into the question. It, it is primarily water that we worry about for ingestion. Um, there's been a lot of work done showing that that can be a dominant route of exposure if we have PFAS chemicals in our water. It can be in food, um, particularly if you were to say, have PFAS contaminated water that you then grow, uh, you know, vegetables in your garden off of. Mm -hmm. There's not, I mean, I think in terms of the, the relative amount of exposure you'd get from drinking water that's contaminated versus the food that could get contaminated that way. Um, there's a lot of study on that, you know, the food contamination piece now and uptake into plants. Mm -hmm. But you'd have to eat a lot of that 
that produce to essentially get the type of exposure you might get from um, a contaminated water source. Finally, another one you think about a lot is like we've built um, PFAS as a water repellent material into a lot of clothing. And so some folks have talked about, you know, you can get contact through your skin, but again, it tends to not be nearly as significant as when you're you're drinking it in if your water supply is contaminated. Right, right. So in other words, this stuff is everywhere. It is used for everything. We haven't found another product that has enough similarities to this product to be able to completely phase these out. Although it should be noted that PFOA has been phased out and we'll talk about that in a second. But before we get there, I wanted you to give an idea and this can be just like a one answer, a one line answer. How widespread is the contamination from this class of chemicals? And I don't mean just in the United States. I mean, this is a worldwide issue, is it not? Yeah, it's a global issue and it's they're, they're fairly ubiquitous is you, you use that word and I think that's fair. So it's it's very widespread. And the stat that you often hear to sort of get this across is if you measured the blood of an average American, we'd all have these chemicals in our blood through just all the uses of them and in our interaction with them in our everyday lives. Incredible. So I'm going to quote, you sent me an article, which I, I would urge actually everyone to read. It was uh, in a 2016 issue of the New York Times. It was a feature story um, and then became uh, the source of the movie Dark Water, which was produced by Mark Ruffalo, who continues to be an advocate on this. Um, and then I think the uh, attorney in question, Rob Billot, in fact, also wrote a book about his experience in trying to bring, um, at the time, uh, DuPont to uh, account. was It was DuPont, right? Because then they spun this off to Shamor. Yeah. I, and that's when I got interested. And that was around about 2016 because my nephew, I digress because that's what I do, um, because my nephew was going to school at the University of North Carolina in mm-hmm. Raleigh-Durham. And there was a big scandal about how much PFOS and P, PFOA especially had been dumped into uh, the local waterways, um, specifically the Cape Fear and the Noosey Rivers. And um, and that the 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 sort of uh, surrounding population had been absorbing a lot of chemical uh, contamination from this. So that's that's when I got it. this is like okay, so that's seven years ago. Um, so I've been following the story for a while because I was just like so appalled by that. But now you know now we're all getting hip to it. So I'm going to read a quote people from this particular article from the New York Times. Um, it's and I don't usually use quotes, but I was so gobsmacked by the information in this article, I just couldn't stop. So um, under the 1976 Toxic Substances Control Act, the EPA can test chemicals only when it has been provided evidence of harm. This arrangement, which largely allows chemical companies to regulate themselves, is the reason that the EPA has restricted only five chemicals out of tens of thousands on the market in the last 40 years. Now, since then, as you pointed out to me, uh, the Lautenberg Act, who was the former governor of New Jersey, uh, was passed in 2016. What did that change? What impact has it had? Well, so I think well, I always share that article, particularly in my classes, because it, it really gets at the problems we've had for a very long time with chemical regulations. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we have uh, original Tosco was set up to be... Um, pretty much uh, a little too cozy with chemical industry and chemical manufacturers. Right. Um, to, the, you know, to this day, a lot of the information that comes um, when, a, when a chemical manufacturer wants to put a new chemical on the market, 
they're the one that's producing all of the quote unquote health effects and environmental fate data as mm-hmm. if there's not a massive conflict of interest there. Right. And right. They come, <laughs> like they're not going to come and say, Hey, we have this new wonder thing that we want to build and, you know, put into every consumer product. And Oh, by the way, it's going to like eat your children. Right. Um, <laughs> Well, you talk know. about the fox guarding the hen house, right? I mean. So that's exactly right. And so I think everyone by the time, you know, 2016 rolled around with the Lautenberg Act knew that Tosca had just dramatically failed. It was mm. not doing what it needed to do. And there are lots of reasons for that. Even just thinking of the logistics of they passed that act, the original Tosca back in like the 70s. And it did nothing with existing chemicals that were already in the marketplace. And mm. I don't know about you, but I don't think we were producing like really outstanding chemicals back in the 20s, 30s and 40s, right? We were right. You know, putting... <laughs> Putting lead in, in baby milk and stuff, right? So um, Yes, right. So the Lautenberg Act was meant to really reform the way we do chemical oversight. Um, it had a lot of important provisions. It was going to address existing chemicals. It was going to set a timeline for uh, working through this large sea of existing chemicals. You know, mm-hmm. it was actually tackling things like asbestos. Like asbestos has been in the news because we still don't really have a good regulatory handle on it. And that's crazy because we know that asbestos is, is horrible for us. Right. Um, the other thing that it did that was significant is it was going to require um, a determination by the EPA before something went to market that there was no harm, essentially like an, an affirmation that there is no effect of this chemical. And um, would that be is, conducted by a third party? Excuse me for interrupting, but... It would, no, it would be conducted by the EPA, right? And oh, so the oh, EPA okay. has essentially a new chemicals division as part of the Lautenberg Act that is having to use chemical models and evaluating um, you know, the industry data that's provided and looking at similar chemicals and trying to make like a, you know, be the referee. Um, I'd say it's all well and good. Um, I mentioned when I shared that article with you that even at the time of the passage of the Lautenberg Act, the chemical companies were supportive of it. They knew that they needed more oversight because they were seeing consumer confidence erode as Mm -hmm. people were choosing, you know, organic certified products or other things to avoid concerns. Um, and so they passed it to quite some historic fanfare. It was bipartisan. Um, and then the Trump administration came in and really didn't get it off on the right foot, didn't fund it effectively, didn't staff it effectively. And so I would say that, you know, the Lautenberg Act and the amendments that came from it have sort of been limping along. Um, has a lot of promise, just probably hasn't hit the, the ground running. We still have these issues of chemical manufacturers providing a lot of that data themselves it's all protected as confidential business information. So mm. any, you know, we allow all of that to largely be hidden from the public as proprietary. Um, That's right. And, you know, and so it's, there's still some challenges and they're still allowing, it's not like we've had a, a ban of perfluorinated chemicals. And so as we think of substitutes, there are still chemical, new chemicals coming through EPA for approval that are technically PFAS, just not these, uh, Older ones that we know are, are, you know, we have a lot of data on now that we know are problematic. And there's probably a good reason to believe that even these new alternatives will still be, you know, not all that great. Right, right. So uh, the article went on to say, and actually this was from the, um, uh, this was another paper that I read from uh, the Environmental Working Group, um, which just came out with a new paper, if I think it's fairly new, maybe a year old at the most. But they, but uh, the EPA has been aware of the problem in drinking water since 2001, at least. And they, in 2016, I guess in tandem with the, with the Lautenberg Act, passed, uh, and they issued a non-enforceable lifetime health advisory for PFO and PFOS, which are the older iterations of these chemicals. And again, PFOA has been out, has been phased out. Um, but they gave 
um, uh, parts per million of 70 parts per million. Is it PPT or PPM? How do I PP, say that? PPT, it's parts per trillion, which parts means per trillion. Na- nanograms per liter. So still pretty small Thank at you. 70. Yeah. Right. But the independent scientific studies have recommended a safe level for PFAS in drinking water of one PPT. Um, so, <laughs> like, what do we got here? Like, if it is yeah. it... I mean, it seems like nobody is really clear on what is and is not a safe level. So how do we get to that formulation? Yeah, that's this is all really important. Um, these are important points. And so Thank you, a couple of things. Like we've, we've, <laughs> no, I mean, because it, it's, so first things first, it's, you know, again, getting back to this is a problem that touches, it's going to touch all of us, right? And I, I think we all have to worry about these issues. And this is, these are not easy things to understand. Mm-hmm. Um and so the timeline that you're you're pointing towards is pretty frustrating. I mean, if if you look at some of the independent science that has been done, even by colleagues in my field from the environmental chemistry perspective, like n- nothing is surprising here in terms of the occurrence where they are. Um, and there's just this growing body of literature now of what all the health impacts are, because in some ways we've been using animal studies to get some insights, like we typically do, but. Even sure. more unfortunately, we now have enough communities that are getting exposed to high levels of these. We can study those communities in epidemiological studies and start to see like, oh, well, these folks have been drinking that water for this long. And here are all the things we see at the community scale that are a little bit amiss in that community. So maybe those are associated. Um, and so, you know, a couple things about that 2016 advisory is, like you said, it was non-enforceable. It was criticized at the time of, you know, being a little too high and only for a couple of chemicals. Mm-hmm. Um there was rapidly evolving health data that was suggesting it needed to be lower. To EPA's credit, although it took some time, they did, in leading up to a new maximum contaminant level, an actual enforceable standard that they wanted to propose for drinking water, um, they lowered the health advisory to effectively zero. It was you know less than one part per trillion is what they were recommending in mm-hmm. a recent health advisory in 2022. Um, basically acknowledging that, you know, for things like PFOS and PFOA, both of which have had sort of reductions in, in, in phases that phased out domestic production because of us recognizing how bad they are, you know, basically saying there's no safe level for you to get exposed to these. Mm. Um, and, and so that's all, you know, again, 2016 doesn't feel like all that long ago. And that's a pretty significant change from 70 to essentially less than one. Yeah. And I, and I think it, you know, while it's important that they finally are sort of acknowledging how severe these are, it's also frustrating to many people who felt like we should have gotten here a lot sooner. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Especially all the people who have had, you know, endocrine disruption. I mean, just briefly, and then we're going to take a short break, but just briefly run us through some of the health impacts that they have found to date, Uh, especially in terms of these epidemiological studies where you see like a broad swath of the population coming down with certain types of cancers, for example. I mean, it's like a love canal story or something, right? Yeah, and keeping it fairly, you know, not getting into all the the specific types. There are associations with different forms of cancer. Um, I think testicular cancer has been reported in one instance. There's there's instances of of suggestions of liver malfunction associated with chemicals uh, influencing your endocrine system. So endocrine disruptors leading to things like high cholesterol. There's reproductive effects. We know that uh, pregnant mothers and young children and developing uh, children are particularly vulnerable uh, to exposures. 
Um, and then immune system effects too. Uh, mm-hmm. There's some studies that have shown that, um, and this is actually what led to some of the, the really low health advisory was based on um, the one less than parts per trillion was based on a study that was showing that um, there's, you know, your immune system wasn't responding. People's immune systems weren't responding as vigorously to uh, vaccines. So mm. it was diphtheria and tetanus and simply all they were, they weren't looking at the effectiveness of vaccines. They were simply looking at once someone received a vaccine and there's immune system response in terms of the antibody buildup, was it as vigorous in communities that had been exposed to low levels of PFAS? And it wasn't. And so just a, a raft of, of potential health impacts that could be coming with these things. And I think we're going to keep seeing more and more. And I should be clear that most of those studies have been done with that PFOS and PFOA. And so as they've shifted to these newer alternatives that are these shorter, smaller chemicals from the PFAS family, it's like starting the cycle all over again. Okay, well, now all the scientists have to go and start collecting all of that data again, mm-hmm. um, even though we all have the suspicion and, and some of the evidence is suggesting that they'll still be problematic. Right, right. I mean, I, once again, I'm going to uh, go off on a tangent here. When you, I, you know, I'm fascinated by this um, immuno, immunological uh, response, but also um, by the um, endocrine response. And okay, I'm going to go out on a total limb here, David, and you please reel me back in. But, you know, I have a young, not so young, I have a 27-year-old kid and her cohort, many of the kids in her cohort um, are are coming out with uh, sort of, shall we say, gender dysmorphia. And I, you know, on some level, I think to myself, well, you know, it's maybe a trend. It's like seen, for some kids, it's seen as very cool. Um, although I don't think it's at all fun to go through that process and I'm not trying to mm-hmm. say it is. But I'm just, you know, with all of this, all of these endocrine disruptors, and I don't mean just PFOA and PFOS. I know there are many other chemicals out there in our food packaging, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm wondering if that, if some of this uh, endocrine disruption is translating into this interesting phenomenon of more and more kids being sort of not completely clear about what they're you know, hormones are telling them, for lack of a better expression. Now, am I crazy to think this? Or or is or do you think there might be some basis for that? I don't think there's any I don't think there's any studies out that can support that. Um I can understand why people might want to think that. Um what I would say is there has been, you know, one good example that's not directly related to gender identity, which I don't necessarily believe myself that it's tied to those exposures. Um, we're seeing earlier and earlier puberty in, in yeah. girls and, and, and boys. Um, and that's where there are two or three different ideas or hypotheses as to why we're seeing the onset of puberty march earlier and earlier. And, and one of those and one of the accepted hypotheses is environmental exposures to mm-hmm. things that we know are endocrine disrupting chemicals. And these are not things necessarily like, um, you know, PFAS has this, the, the links to endocrine disruption or have been proposed, but it's other things that we know, like phthalates that are in plastics and bisphenols mm-hmm. that we use in a variety of things. Um, so there, I mean, I think, it, and again, it's not, that's not settled science. You know, these are hypotheses, but sure. I, there's a few others that people have seen. And there was a really interesting um, phenomenon after COVID where there was essentially a, a spike in reporting of early onset uh, puberty. 
And some of that ties to some of these other factors in terms of some folks have thought it's related to like melatonin and screen time, some things that people have thought about not, you know, outdoor versus indoor. So mm. there's, there's a, and, and some of them have just linked it to stress. And so, you know, there are instances where we know that um, potentially chemical exposures can affect things at a uh, population scale. But um, I'm not aware of anything that would get towards um, sort of the point you were raising. Um, I don't think there's any study there on that at all mm. or that I know of. I'd be I'd be fascinated to see it. Not that it's a huge swath of the population. I know the Republican Party likes to make it sound like every other kid is gender dysmorphic. But, you know, of course, we know it's like, what, one percent of the population of that age, you know. But it just yeah. I mean, I, I just find it a curious phenomenon. I mean, there have always been people who haven't been happy in their gender and and. But there is, I, to my knowledge, and I'm 67 years old, I have never seen as widespread. And maybe it's because society is more accepting. I mean, there could be a lot of sociological factors in play. But I was just curious about that, you know, the the, um, the correlation between chemicals, whatever they may be, and uh, some of the trends that we're seeing in, in the health of our youth. Um, we got to take a short break, but we'll be right back with David Swartney. Uh, please stay tuned. We've got a lot more to cover here before we, we're done. Forever Cheese, a leading importer of cheese and specialty food, has sourced exceptional products from Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Croatia for 25 years. Offering a wide selection of artisan cheese, charcuterie, nuts, crackers, preserves, and more, their products are sold in stores nationwide. Forever Cheese seeks out the best of the Mediterranean and focuses on sharing stories from their family of producers— Each product has a unique story, and their goal is to celebrate each one. From drunken goat to genuine Fluvi Pecorino Romano, Mostarda to Mitica Marcona almonds, and Duya to Hamon Iberico, Forever Cheese is proud to offer products they love from people they believe in. Their passion, quality, and range are unmatched. Learn more at forevercheese.com and look for their products in a grocery store, restaurant, or specialty food shop near you. So, David, okay, now that you've put my favorite theory to bed. <laughs> I, well, I just am not really comfortable to, to speak to it. I, I don't know. And I, and I did, well, but I'm pretty- As you said, I, I, there hasn't been any real studies. So, well, as far as I know, and I could be wrong there, right? And it's just like, um, you know, links to autism. People want to tie autism and the increased incidence of autism to these chemical, to a variety of chemical exposures as well could possibly be, but it could also be improvements in medicine. It could be, um, you know, in terms of detection, you know, right. as you mentioned for, for folks that are coming out on the, the, the gender identity spectrum, it, it, there, you can't separate the societal effects where we are a much more accepting society. Right. And these are things that have to be factoring into it. So I don't know that you'll ever be able to prove it one way or the other. I'm also, you know, I'm, I'm very hesitant to talk too much about those sorts of things because I don't want anybody who is going through um, a transition or, or has come out to sort of feel like they're some, you know, in, you know, byproduct of chemical exposures, right? I, I think that's mm-hmm. a really, you know, it's tough a- thing to talk about, or even, I don't want to really even imply it because you would, it, it really diminishes who they are and their identity. And rather, and without real grounding and science behind it, I don't, you know, I don't think much could be said. I think you are, you are an excellent diplomat, unlike myself, right? I'm sure I've made a lot of people mad by that. <laughs> well, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see, what, we'll see which blowback I get. Right? I mean, or if we, what blowback we get if people listen. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. 
But I, I mean, I just, I find it, you know, a fascinating uh, phenomenon that's going on in our society. And I'm, I'm just like looking around for all of the different reasons that, you know, explain that and, and some of the other. I mean, you know, it, there's another factor. You mentioned the immunological response, and I don't want to dwell too long on this, but like I'm wondering, you know, for some people, the the vaccines for COVID were more effective than they were for other people. And I wonder if that had an impact, you know, if if this kind of contamination, whether it's PFAS or, or some other compound, um, might also be a factor in that. But that we're not going to go on with that. We're going to go talk now about, um, I'm going to skip the Madrid statement because we're out of time. You're going to come back, David, I'm sorry. Um, but um, PFOA has been replaced, as you mentioned, by newer formulations. And these are, um, what they call shorter chain. You alluded to that. And there's something like 600 of these in active use. So, and the, and the chemical companies are claiming that they are safer. But the, as the EWG pointed out, the Environmental Working Group, uh, the EPA, EPA allowed them on the market without adequate safety testing. And they may pose even more serious problems. So what what can the EPA now, you know, like the cow is out of the barn. <laughs> what, what do we do now? Like, how do we, you know, get to the bottom of whether these short chain ones are actually uh, going to be uh, better, have a better outcome for society? But then the other correlative issue is what is being done to develop new, a new class of chemicals that has many of the same applications, but with uh, fewer of the um, potential side effects? Yeah, you know, so there's a, a, a term um, actually in the chemical community that's that's gets used to describe these, uh, well, these shorter chain alternatives and a lot of other um, alternatives when we discover that chemicals have issues and they're called regrettable substitutes. Because what, what we- <laughs> Regrettable? Uh, Is that what you reg- just said? Re- regrettable substitutes. <laughs> yeah. Um, That's fantastic. And it's simply because like we've done this a lot. And so like a good example, I mentioned bisphenols before. We had bisphenol A, BPA. It was right. in like baby bottles. We started getting worried about in it. In our water bottles. Absolutely. Correct. Right. And so they replaced it with, with you know, a, another bisphenol just that had one extra little piece on it chemically, right? Really mm-hmm. small change. And then, you you know, you say, voila, we've, we've created a brand new chemical. And you're like, well, it right. looks like a duck you know, quacks like a duck, probably is a duck. <laughs> right. um, and so I think that's where we're at with the shorter chain alternatives. You know, um, you had sent me in some of the pre-production stuff about the Madrid statement. And one of the pieces in there, which is the scientific consensus document that I think was important in sort of getting the community on the same page, they particularly or specifically target like these next generation alternatives. And they talk about how while they might be less bioaccumulative, which we can attribute to them being smaller, mm-hmm. they're still going to be very persistent. We still have issues of limited availability on them, including things like their toxicity and where they're getting integrated into products. And there are examples where alternatives to PFOS and PFOA, you mentioned North Carolina and Gen X is, is this um, mm-hmm. new alternative of, of a PFAS chemical that is just as problematic and toxic. Um, and so you know, what we need to be doing is pushing for innovation uh, to get non-fluorinated chemicals that can do all of the same things these fluorinated chemicals do that we like. And so I know there's a big push to think about non-fluorinated firefighting foams because that is an area right. where, you know, I think anybody on a, on a plane that's, that has landed and is on fire would be really happy to have an effective firefighting foam that contain yeah. and wouldn't care if it contained fluorinated chemicals, right? So... <laughs> Um, Maybe not in those circumstances, right? Yeah, exactly. And so, like, you got to understand that there's a there are benefits, and we need to figure out how to get those benefits. We also need to just keep robust research to figure out 
you know, where the next problems are for chemicals that have already, you know, the horses that have already left the barn. Mm-hmm. Um, and then last but not least, I mean, I think Lautenberg is a good step, but we, we need more. Um, I had a colleague of mine that's been involved with environmental chemistry and chemical uh, chemicals and commerce for some time, uh, dating back to other things that were, you know, problematic, like PCBs and dioxins that we've mm. had to act to phase out. And he was talking about, like, we should be expecting chemical companies when they go to the market to, um, you know, basically get insurance for their chemicals. Like, they, you know, acknowledge up front that they're going to be, you know, liable. And if they had to get insured to take a, a chemical to market, perhaps they would actually produce uh, fate and effects data that was where it needed to be to to catch any problems because otherwise they wouldn't be able to take it to market if they couldn't get the product insured. So Wow, what an interesting there, concept. Not mine, Phil Geschwend at MIT. He's a brilliant man. Um, <laughs> and, and so I want to own it up to him. But there are ideas out there. It's just chemical lobbies are really, really powerful. <laughs> All of these lobbies are powerful. I mean, it's just exactly right. it's staggering. So uh, one thing that really struck me when I was doing this reading is, is um, you know, we drink a huge amount of bottled water in this country, right? Mm-hmm. So how much if at all, are, company, are water companies testing for PFAS? And are they required to do so? No, bottled water, um, you know, to, to urge your listeners, it is a product that is less regulated, more expensive, more mm-hmm. environmentally destructive from the plastic waste than um, tap water. And um, there's no requirements to test. It's regulated as a food product by the FDA. It's not regulated as a, as a drinking water source by the EPA. Much wow. less stringently regulated. Some bottled studies have shown that some bottled water has PFAS in them. There's no guarantee you're getting a cleaner product or a safer product when you're drinking bottled water. That's thank um, you very much for that. I really appreciate you saying that out loud. I know that Dasani, for example, owned by the Pepsi or Coca Cola, is is basically bottling water from the you know, Athens, Georgia, uh, you know, municipal water system and selling it yeah. for a dollar something a bottle. So you know, there, there are instances where bottled water makes sense in like humanitarian crises or, you know, right. for convenience, but I'd, I'd rather folks advocate for drinking their tap water. Um, and we can talk a little bit about home treatment and things they could do to give themselves some protection if they have the means, but. Well, let's do it. that actually, because we, sh- I mean, we, we have about five more minutes and I, I do want to talk about what technology exists um, that can help people especially if they're in an area which they may suspect has been heavily contaminated by PFAS, either because you're near a plant, near a chemical plant, or because you're near uh, an army base, you know, a military base. I mean, like, what can people do to protect themselves? And what are municipalities able to do? Yeah, so municipalities are, um, it's the same technologies available to municipalities that are available to homeowners, just at different scale, right? So if mm-hmm. you're in your home, you're using what we call point of use or point of entry devices. If you've, you know, a Brita filter or a, even a pitcher filter would qualify mm-hmm. as a point of use device. Unfortunately, PFAS can be difficult to remove, so they require more expensive um, point of use treatments. And so if you can afford a reverse osmosis uh, system that might go under your counter, uh, or for your whole home, those are usually really effective at removing a broad swath of the PFAS family of chemicals. Mm. Um, other ones are like activated carbon, which is typically what's in a Brita, a Brita filter or in your yeah. fridge filter, um, or ion exchange resins, which are sometimes also in Brita. They can be hit or miss, good for some PFAS chemicals, particularly PFOS and PFOA, not so good for some of the shorter chain uh, newer ones. 
Um, the challenge with like those for homeowners is they're very expensive. And it's, uh, you know, we, I want to make sure people understand that there's a bit of a, a justice issue here in terms of the people that usually need those technologies the most are probably least available to afford them. So right. if you have the means, like reverse osmosis systems, probably about $1,200, $1,500. If you can do that and you want that level of security, more power to you. And I would totally understand doing that. But we need to be thinking about how to get resources and support to folks that don't have that type of income to just invest in safe water. And again, think of where we were finding it in Iowa. Right. Parts, wells, well users. These aren't, you know, necessarily, uh, you know, places where you have high, big income. At the well, municipal scale, just know it's going to be really pricey. Um, it, these are expensive technologies and there's it won't be easy for a lot of systems, particularly smaller ones like we have in Iowa to, to scale. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, well, I mean, I, Iowa is actually a constant um, source of interest to me. Um, and in fact, of course, you and I were introduced by my last guest, Chris Jones, who wrote a, you know, a very interesting book about the state of Iowa's waters. And I always think about the wonderful Bill Stowe, who you know, went to the extraordinary measure of suing uh, upriver counties of Des Moines because he couldn't get anybody to pay attention to how much it was costing to filter the nitrates and phosphorus out of their water system. So, um, you know, these water systems uh, are being overwhelmed by by lots of chemicals. I mean, it's not just PFAS. It's, you know, it's nitrates, it's phosphorus, it's all of the agricultural chemicals, it's all of the waste that is being, you know, sprayed all over everything. It's really, I mean, our whole water system in this country really needs an upgrade and a serious, um, you know, people need to address it in a serious way, in my opinion. I think the government is failing us uh, in maintaining a safe, uh, potable water system. But how, how would you characterize, for example, the Biden administration's um, response to um, pollution like this? And um, do you feel like, uh, you know, they're allocating resources and study time to uh, increasing our, you know, safety in water drinking, in drinking water? You know, it, it, yes, and, yes and no. Um, mm-hmm. I think for PFAS, I think they are. I mean, so they set, they proposed a new maximum contaminant level, which would be an enforceable standard for PFOA and PFOS. And those right. would be four, four parts per trillion or four nanograms per, per liter for each of them. And those are really stringent. Those are essentially as, as like low as most places will be able to measure them. So it's what we would say is that the, the kind of a common limit of detection um, and they're more aggressive than what a lot of states were putting in place. Um, yes. So I think in terms of PFAS, they've done as much as they can from a regulatory standpoint. The challenge is it's going to take a lot of money. And I don't know, while they're allocating resources to municipalities to pay for upgrades, I don't know that it's going to be nearly enough. Some of the biggest opponents of these proposed MCLs are actually water systems who are sort of dreading how they're going to manage the the technology and the the, re, the the financial needs to to get these things out of the water sure. um, and how do, how do you do that without passing it all over to your ratepayers if you want um like the, the the happiest most positive sort of blue sky scenario here is that if we could <laughs> actually invest to help all these systems get the technologies they need they will, to remove PFAS chemicals there will be amazing co- what we call co-benefits that mm-hmm. a reverse osmosis system that's scrubbing out PFOA and POFOS is scrubbing out nitrate. It's scrubbing out these other things. And so if we could, you know, there could be the, the possibility, like you said, if there's a huge investment, we could start to revitalize the quality of our water in a lot of places. 
the concern I have is that we're not going to invest nearly enough. It's going to be this patchwork uh, hodgepodge of resources where some get lucky and get it and others don't. And we just further divide between haves and have nots, right? That's the concern. Of course. And that makes sense. Um, one last question, then I, I will let you go because we're kind of running over now. But how have other countries dealt with this, you know, accepting, of course, that we are, you know, like we're not the size of France. OK, you know, like, I mean, but how have other countries dealt with their PFAS con- contamination? You know, I think it's um, very I wouldn't say anyone's really all that far ahead or um, probably more likely folks are behind. We're pretty lucky in the U.S. to have the technology and the means to worry about these where, right. you know, there are some countries where drinking water is, you know, you have other concerns that are more severe. Yeah. Absolutely. Pathogens, you ain't stuff. drinking it. Yeah. You know, the EU has, is, is wrestling with things like firefighting foams. They're setting standards for, you know, exposure and drinking water. I, I'd say the EU tends to be a little bit further ahead of us just generally when it comes to environmental protection, mm-hmm. um, just because, well, we're <laughs> our political system has politicized environmental protection. Um, right. So, you know, where we sit, you know, I think we're doing about as well as we can. Um, and I don't think we're all that far ahead or all that far behind for other folks in the the, the world. I will say that it is a global issue that the Madrid statement again talked about, you know, we we're, there are going to be folks around the globe that don't have the capacity and technology to deal with these things. We need to be thinking globally to help them. And we can also, we should also be realizing that we've acted globally before on things like phase out of ozone depleting chemicals. Like we can do this. Like it's not a bad thing to try to partner with folks internationally and try to protect the planet. Um, hopefully we can do that again. <laughs> Not a bad thing, people. You heard it's it not. here first. Yeah, there you go. Break it, break it, run the breaking news cry on, okay? I want the I want the music in the background. Hopefully right. your your staff can make that happen. Oh my god. Dave, you have been a joy and a delight. I hope you'll come back. This has been a great discussion. I want to hear more about what you're doing uh, and other um, toxins that we may or may not be all that aware of. I mean, I could go on and on about this PFAS stuff, so we may do something against about that because I'm not Anytime. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate your time today. Thanks to my sponsors. As always, thank you to my listeners, and, uh, and we'll see you next week. That's all for now. Bye-bye. What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.